So we've talked about these three truths that are unparalleled, when, especially when taken together in the world in which the, the Old Testament came to be written and in the New Testament, when the world in which the New Testament was written and added to the Old Testament. They are together unparalleled anywhere else. There may be some, some uh, approximations to the, the God being a creator, uh, perhaps in Islam, and then uh, to God being sovereign, for sure, in Islam. But really, it's, it happens in Islam because Islam is a ripoff from the Bible. Um, and that's, it's, it's borrowed and, and stolen um, truths that they distort and pervert. But the one that we're going to start looking at tonight, nobody can duplicate or imitate. Um, certainly they can take it and, and distort it and, and abuse it and misuse it and, and try to overthrow it. But the third one is that there's one and only one Redeemer. And that Redeemer is the Creator, Sovereign Lord. And salvation is of the Lord, and man can do nothing to save himself. So taking those, taking those three together, there's nothing like it anywhere in all the history of mankind. It belongs to God, it belongs to his word, because he's the only God, and this is his word. And anywhere else, that's not the truth. Here's the truth to be found. So the third main point I want to enter into tonight is... God is the only Redeemer, He is the only Savior, and He saves sinners by Himself. And lest you misunderstand, I'm not saying that He's the Savior and He offers it. Yes, that is true, but in the offer, He gives Himself and He brings us to Himself. Because left to ourselves, we would always reject that offer. We'd always spurn the gospel and go our own way. So God comes and He saves us. Fully, thoroughly. So, <clears throat> I want to put it this way to start with. All three of these unparalleled truths are found in one man in the Bible. That God is the only creator, that God is the sovereign Lord, and God is the only redeemer. All three of them are found in one man in the Bible who is the most unique person who's ever lived. And of course, you know that person is Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. At his name, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus, out of all the other pretend lords, all the other pretend gods and goddesses, all will come, the day will come when everyone will bow before him and confess him as Lord, the one and only Lord. And we will do it gladly, and unbelievers who reject the Lord up until his return will be forced to do it, whether they like it or not. He's the only Savior, and he puts it this way himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus certainly knew who he was. Jesus wasn't speculating. Jesus, Jesus wasn't trying to figure it out as he, was, as he was growing and maturing and interacting with the people around him and going to synagogue. He knew who he was. He states it very, uh, very powerfully and very absolutely in John 14, 6. And, of course, that's not the only place. So our Savior is our creator. 
Our Savior is the sovereign Lord of all, and our Savior is our Redeemer. So we want to look at those things because I think it's so important. Every cult goes awry, at least at this point, who Jesus is and what he did. And so every cult always distorts or is defective or perverts the nature of God, the doctrine of God, and or the doctrine of salvation. And most of them get them both wrong. Because if you get the doctrine of God wrong, you cannot get the doctrine of salvation right. And then if you get the doctrine of salvation wrong, you never get to God. Because if you get the doctrine of salvation wrong, that salvation, however you want to put it, keeps you away from God. It's a lie of the devil, okay? So let's start. John 1 would be the obvious place to go to start with. John 1, 1, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is our creator. John 1. Familiar probably to us all here tonight. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So thus far, what does this mean? Well, we are surprised when we read this if we're a Jew at that time. In the beginning was the Word. Wait a minute. What, what does it say in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God. What's this? In the beginning was the Word. And then it gets perhaps more confusing, challenging, surprising, shocking, and the Word was with God. Well, wait a minute. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything else, God. This is saying that God, yes, but there was the Word with God. What are we doing here? Where is he going with this? And lest you misunderstand in any way, he says, and the Word was God. And that last clause, the Word was God, it's making the point that the Word was fully of the nature and being and essence of God. Now, you might be aware of what a certain cult that goes by the name of the Jehovah's Witnesses, how they pervert this in their so-called New World Translation. And they take that last clause and they say the Word was a God. Because it's so clear that it's saying whoever the word is, that the word was God, that it would decimate their whole religion. I had to make a change there. But in the Greek, when you would write Greek and speak Greek, you would know what you were doing when you said or wrote this. And that's what it means, that you cannot put an A in front of the word God, because that distorts the meaning of that clause. It is saying... The Word was God. The Word was every bit as much as God as you and I know God to be. The fullness of God was shared by the Word with God in the beginning. And as the church began to process this tremendous truth, began to realize the Father was in the beginning and so was the Son and the Father and the Son created the universe. And then another part of the truth comes into place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the deep. 
the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And you begin to see how quickly the church, with the help of the Holy Spirit, began to understand the triune nature of God so early on, and to worship Jesus as God along with the Father without there even being a hiccup in any of the New Testament documents. You will not find any argument anywhere in the first 100 and 200 years of the church regarding the nature of Jesus Christ being God and being fully worthy of the worship of God, the, uh, God as God the Father is. And you would think that Jews who believe there is one God and man cannot be God would have been battling and fighting over this. Not a hint in any of the New Testament writings of any controversy over the worship of Jesus Christ right alongside with God. That's amazing. That's a tremendous proof that what we have here is not made up by humans, but it is in fact the very word of God. And it's telling us who God is. And that God has come in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says, in the beginning was the Word. So there in the beginning, when everything was being made, the Word was there. He was with God when God was there in the beginning to create. And John is deliberately saying, what you've read in the beginning of the Holy Book, the Scriptures, I am showing you something that is not clearly revealed there. Now, a little later on in Genesis, doesn't it say this? Let us make man in our own image and according to our likeness. The us, well, some theologians have tried to change that into a so-called plural of majesty. We don't buy it. We say, uh-uh. God, who inspired Moses to write, knew who he was. <laughs> and, the, and the form in which he existed in eternity and that was being revealed there at the very beginning, even though many thought, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so John is given the task, what a holy task, what a glorious task it is to say, here is the rest of the story. Now, verse 2, he, that meaning the word, was in the beginning with God. You see how he's underlining and emphasizing this and clarifying it and saying, make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. Before there were ever any angels, before there were ever any animals or insects or lands or water or stars or suns and moons and planets, he was there. And then verse 3, all things were made through him. Now notice it doesn't immediately say through God. It says him, and him is referring to the word. So the word that was with God and was God in the beginning God the Father made absolutely everything through the Word, Jesus Christ. He says, all things, A-L-L, were made through him, and without him or apart from him, nothing was made that was made. And of course, this also decimates some of the cults who will argue that first there was God, and then he made his son. Well, this is saying, read it carefully, all things were made through the word. So the word did not make himself. And then it says, and without him, apart from the word, Jesus Christ, the word, nothing was made that was made. So if Jesus Christ was made by God and then everything else, there's a problem. So all things that were made were made through him. All things that are 
partake of the nature of being created. We're created through the word. And we're going to see more on that in just a few moments. But there you have it. Now, later on, we say to ourselves, well, okay, the word then. Who is the word? We may be beginning to think, hmm, um, from my understanding of the scriptures, I'm beginning to think this is, this is also Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Well, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is speaking too, retrospectively, he's saying, oh, we look back and we realize now who, who he was. Remember in the boat, we thought we were all going to drown, and he was sleeping. And then he stood up, he said, peace be still, and immediately it went from storm about to drown us and kill us to absolute peace and stillness in an instant. And they got more afraid, saying, who is this? Well, now he knows, and he's looking back, and he's, he's putting it here for us. Verse 15, John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness of him, the word, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was, he existed before me. Now, who was conceived first, John the Baptist or Jesus the, the Messiah? John the Baptist. Now, notice that again. John bore witness of Jesus Christ. He said, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was, he existed before me. So John the Baptist was conceived before Jesus. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Son of God who existed before everything else. In the beginning was the Word. So John, it has been revealed to John that Jesus Christ pre-existed his earthly and human existence. Then he goes on and he says, And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Oh, there he is, the word. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, unlike Matthew in Mark and Luke, John says, let me show you all my cards. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, who's the Word and who's the Son of God, who is God come in the flesh. It's there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they, they don't present it quite that bluntly at the very beginning like John does. So there's different reasons why that would be, but, you know, it's interesting how John, by the Holy Spirit, decided to present Jesus in the way that he has. So our Savior is our creator. Now look at Colossians 1, where we read in the beginning. Colossians chapter 1. And we can look at uh, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So important words. God in himself is a spirit, and he doesn't have a body like we do. 
To say that God is spirit means to say that he exists in a way that none other exists. He's an infinite spirit. He's a glorious spirit. He is everywhere and all wise and all powerful, but you cannot look in one place and say, oh, here he is. Um, To us, that which is a spirit is not perceivable by any of our five senses. We cannot know this God unless this God makes him known to us. So when it says he is the image of the invisible God, what it's saying is what John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ, as a man, and we are made in the image and likeness of God, so when, when the Son of God came, the word became flesh, who he was as Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he was the very image of God, perfect as a human being. But even before he came, in his pre-existence as the Son with the Father, who the Father is, the Son was a perfect replica. So he was as much God as the Son, as God is as the Father. And Then it goes on to say he's the firstborn over all creation. And that's not so much about when he was born chronologically, but his his place over all creation. In other words, his sovereignty, his glory, his status, his position. So so when uh, John says there that um, oh when when wait a minute no I don't want to say that I want to go back to the first part of this I meant to say this as I was developing it he's the image of the invisible God all right so then John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and before Christ came as a man he was the image of the Father the Father and the Son. And that's why when he did come in the flesh, later on in John, he could say, he that has seen the Father, what? Has seen, he that has seen me, sorry, has seen the Father. John 14, verse 9. So think about that. Here he is, fully God, with the Father, and the Son has perfect likeness to the Father. He's the very image of the invisible God. He comes, that word becomes flesh, and as he walks around, doing what he does, saying what he says, being a perfect man, perfectly the image and likeness of God, he can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then he goes on and he says, this image of the invisible God is the firstborn over all creation, which means, like I said, started to say there, that he is above all others. So firstborn has the idea of eminence or station, position, prominence. He is supreme over all creation. So there we see our Savior is our creator, and our Savior is our sovereign. You can see it there. Then he goes on and he says, verse 20, and by him, I'm sorry, I've skipped a verse, haven't I? Verse 16, for by him, 
all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So thinking about that, it's clearly saying that there are no exceptions. There is no exception to what is created. Everything that exists other than God who is uncreated was created by Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And he doesn't just say by him all things were created, notice. He says by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So in other words, all of the created realm, but it also goes on to say visible and invisible. And I I think there's a lot of things that are invisible to the human eye that we know about that people back in those days didn't know about. We have our microscopes and we have our telescopes, right? And we can talk about things that weren't talked about by them. And, uh, you know, what we've learned about the cell and atoms and subatomic structures, amazing, right? All things visible and invisible. And then he adds something else here. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, which would encompass, would include the angelic realms and hierarchy and the demonic realm and hierarchy. Firstborn over all things. And then it goes on and says, at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. You exist for him. The devils exist for him. Everything exists for him. Evil rulers and authorities. What's that Proverbs 16 for? God has made all things for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Proverbs 16, 4. Awesome. Overwhelming. Mentally daunting. (laughs) What? Yeah. Take your time. Don't run, Don, please. Don't worry. (laughs) Those things. I have a button on my phone. When that happens, I can hit that button and it stops making noise. Find that button. (laughs) And then verse 17, and he is before all things. And notice how Paul is fully developing the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is before all things. Isn't that what John said? He was before me. This is the one that I was speaking of. He is before me. He was preferred above me because he existed before I did. And again, Paul is seeing this and explaining it to us. He is before all things. Now here's another one. And in him all things consist. You're sitting there relaxed, enjoying yourself. The reason why what you're sitting on doesn't dissolve and you fall down and hurt yourself is because all things things in him consist. He holds everything together. And then it says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning 
the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And there you see sovereignty again as well as creator. Well, there's more. Hebrews chapter 1, take a look at that. So our Savior is our creator, and our Savior is our sovereign Lord, and the sovereign Lord of all the universe. So you have Hebrews chapter 1, And remember, when we studied this, we said that God spoke to his people all throughout history, but when his son came, that was his final, glorious, comprehensive word to all the world, and especially to us who believe. So in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us now, your translation here says, by his son. The Greek word, that's okay, but the Greek word uh, is actually, we could say, in his son. And I think that's important. That's an important distinction to be made is that, is that in this son, in this man, in this person, everything that God has said has been because of him and everything that he now finally says to us all is because of him. In other words, all of God's plan, all of God's deeds and actions, B.C. and A.D., are all in him because we were created by him and through him and for him so that everything is really about Jesus Christ, that in him, that he might have the preeminence in all things. So even the writer of Hebrews here is, knows this and is saying that in this way, in this context. So has in these last days, God's final, the final days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. There's sovereignty again, supremacy. Through whom also he made the worlds. There's creator, he's the creator. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, what glorious words these are, can make no mistake that everything that is God is also the Son and upholding all things by the word of his power. There again is sovereignty. Just like it says in Colossians, in him all things hold together or consist. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's the firstborn over all creation. He's at the highest point, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Then if you move to verse 10, taking Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, the writer of Hebrews quotes that Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, here in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, and he speaks it of the Son. Now if you go back to Psalm 102, these words apply to the God of Israel. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this, these words are about Jesus Christ. Now, notice what it says here, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. So he's the creator of heaven and earth. They will perish, but you remain, because God can't change. They will all grow old like a garment. 
Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. So there Jesus is identified as the creator and also as the immutable, the unchanging God who is always the same. And if you look at Hebrews 13.8, you can turn there if you wish, but I'll just quote it. He is uh, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our Savior is our creator. Our Savior is the sovereign Lord of all. Pretty wonderful, isn't it? So glorious to see these things together like this. Now, a little bit more before we're finished. Ephesians chapter 1, which has become somewhat familiar to us with our studies in Ephesians and especially spiritual warfare. So look at Ephesians 1, and we'll just take a little bit of the end of Ephesians 1 and, re- and be reminded. So our Savior is our creator, as you have seen. Our Savior is the sovereign Lord over all. And here you'll see that again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Talking about God's power, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now there's his sovereignty. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is Christ our Lord has the supremacy uh, over all that is. Now watch this. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now let me, let me put it this way to you. That would be wrong if Jesus wasn't also God. Because only God can have the absolute supremacy, right? If there was something or someone other than God with absolute supremacy, that would be God. You can't have two absolutes. You can't have two who are both utterly supreme. Because it doesn't work that way. Supremacy has no competition. Supremacy has no equal or else it's not supreme. So isn't it interesting that the same God who saved us receives the greatest name that will ever be worshipped, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because the Father and the Son are one. So to attribute supremacy to Jesus Christ is only right because he is God. To attribute some supremacy to our Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is only right because He is God. And then, silently, quietly, the other person, the Holy Spirit, who is just as supreme, but is not often mentioned in such contexts for obvious reasons. So then take a look at chapter 3 as we move on. Well, I didn't finish there, right? So he says in verse 22, And he the Father put all things under his, the Son's feet, and gave the Son to be head over all things to the church. And I like to, I want to read this and not just forget it and move on to the next passage, because I, I want you to see this, that when Jesus died and rose again and ascended, to the glory of God the Father and was seated at his right hand as the firstborn over all creation, having the supremacy. 
This is the guarantee that the church will not expire. The church will not be wiped out. The church will not be destroyed. The kingdom of God will advance and will win no matter how things look, how bleak they look, how grim they look, how impossible to think that the gospel is going to survive. It will because he's at the right hand of God over all powers, principalities, demonic realms, angelic realms. He is supreme over all and he will fulfill his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Right? So you can see that. So that's why I like always to remember this. He gave the Father put his Son over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the most glorious divine human institution upon the face of the earth is the church, the body of Christ. As much as it is despised, and you hear people say, I don't believe in organized religion, and, you know, I, I believe, but I don't have anything to do with the church because there are a bunch of hypocrites there. That's, that's very sinful thinking, especially coming out of the mouth of somebody who professes faith in Christ. And you come to these verses, and you say, and what else is the church known as in the scriptures? The bride of Christ. To diss the bride of Christ is a horrible thing because he loves his bride and his bride loves him. As faultful as we are and blemish as we are right now, one day we will appear with the glory of God without blemish and without spot and without wrinkle, having the white robes of his gift of righteousness. But let's take a look at chapter 3 before we finish. Chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, says Paul, who am less than least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? That I should preach among the Gentiles, what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. And, continuing to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. The mystery he's referring to is the gospel. That God through Christ will unite Jew and Gentile and create one new people who together with Christ will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth forever. Well, this was really hidden and was waiting for the coming of Messiah to be fully revealed. He's saying, God gave me the grace to reveal it to me, to understand this. Because remember, Paul was called to be the apostle to whom? To the Gentiles, right? So God also gave Paul, this is what I want to do. This is what I've been planning to do. And I'm calling you to be the apostle that leads the way on this. But it's also interesting, isn't it? Who was the apostle, as far as we know, is the first apostle to preach to Gentiles? Peter, the centurion of the Italian regiment, who God called to send for Peter. And then Peter received a vision to go to him. A Gentile, you're not supposed to go in and talk to them or eat with them. So you see, God has really woven this plan together with all of his apostles so getting back to this, with that understanding, here it is, verse 10, to the intent, God's intent, that now the manifold wisdom of God, now the manifold wisdom of God is a phrase that, that 
applies to the unsearchable riches of Christ, the fellowship of the mystery, which was from the beginning hidden, but now made known through Christ. He says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, guess by who? By the church, as we preach the gospel. And notice to whom? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So when we worship God, when you witness, when you live for Jesus Christ, you're not just showing it to the people around you. You are glorifying God right in the face and the teeth of the devil and the demons, along with the happy angels when they see us do this and who will assist us to do this. We're saying we know something nobody else ever knew or could know. And we're making Jesus Christ known by how we live our lives, wherever we are. Remember where I said our spiritual warfare is? Everywhere, all the time, in all places. Well, that's when this is taking place too. We're glorifying God and revealing the mystery everywhere we are, all the time, in all the places where we go. That's our job. Verse 11, according to the singular, that is the eternal purpose, not purposes, which he accomplished, God the Father accomplished, where again? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that great? So you know something that nobody else knew or can know. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets would think, what, what is this? I've written. What is this? I've said. What is this? I've preached. Hmm. Trying to figure it out. You read First and Second Peter pointing that out. And then Jesus Christ comes in. They don't see it. They don't know it. He even tells his disciples who he is and what he's come to do. And if they had really believed Jesus' words, how many times have I said this? They would have gone down to the tomb and said, he's going to come out of here. He's going to come out of here. He said on the third day he would rise. We're going to see it. And Peter might say, you know how Peter always is very brash. Well, let's help him out here. Let's roll away the stone. And probably John would have looked at him in his peaceful heart and said, Peter, take a chill pill. If he's going to rise from the dead, he knows what to do with this rock. Right? But no, the men were hiding. They were fearful. And the women came to finish embalming. Well, not embalming, but preparing a body for its final resting place. But he knew who he was. And he came out of that tomb, the mighty power of resurrection, angels visiting and speaking to them. He's, did you notice what the angels said to them? He is risen just as he said. I wonder if they didn't sort of go, he did say that, didn't he, I guess. <laughs> so next time somebody starts saying, well, the Bible, you know, it's myth and fables and made up. If you made something up, you wouldn't make yourself look so clueless and utterly witless. That's the way it was, because it's the truth. And one other thing that I would say here, and we looked at this um, in, back in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, you know, everything he made will change, but he doesn't change. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In order to be absolutely sovereign, a Lord who is absolutely sovereign must also be eternal. Because where is Julius Caesar today? Where is Alexander the Great? What happened to Adolf? 
and Stalin and Mao. And what's going to happen to the guy who's trying to be Mr. Mao now over there in China? They all die. They might live a long time, and that's sometimes I wonder, why do you let them live that long and let them kill that many people? But there they are. But everyone dies. All the great names that have risen up to conquer the world, like Napoleon, they're all dead. Where's Jesus? Reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If you're not eternal, you're not sovereign. Because your time will come, maybe, and your time will go forever. So our Lord, our Savior is our creator and our sovereign Lord, who's the sovereign Lord over all. And I think with that, I'm going to stop and give you one last verse. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So our Savior is our creator. Our Savior is the sovereign Lord over all. And finally, and of course, our Savior is the only Savior. No other Savior can accomplish what we really need for our salvation. And that's what Peter says, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Love this verse. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, it's great to think of you as our Lord. It's great to think of you as our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who came into this world and shed his blood for us. But, oh, Lord, we, we hear, we read, we study, we see you're the creator who became our Savior. You're the sovereign Lord who governs every detail of the universe, and you're also the one who submitted himself under the hand of your Father as the Son who came to deliver us from our sins. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Such a mystery, such glory, such wonder. We bow before you and trust in you and you alone. May we love to say, Jesus, that you are Lord. May we always be ready to confess it and even to bend the knee willingly and happily and joyously that you are the Lord as well as our Savior. And this we pray in your glorious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.